Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. It's good to see all of you here today. Um, Last week we started a series in Easter called Vivify, uh, Relationships That Bring Life. And we started by looking at uh, the most formative and foundational relationship that we have, uh, that with the Lord. And then we get that one right. We get reconciled to the Father, then the other ones begin to work themselves out and fall into place. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue in looking at the next relationship we see in the Scriptures, uh, which is that of marriage. We see God had a relationship with Adam and Eve, and they had a relationship with one another. And so, if you have your Bibles, whether you have a paper copy or a A nice digital one. If you'll grab that, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get going. So as you get that, if you'll stand, and then we'll read once y'all all get turned there, and we'll keep on moving. In Ephesians chapter 5, the word of the Lord says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands, and take a seat. Pray with me. Father, we, we're deeply thankful that you were faithful then, that you will be faithful now. God, that you've made a way for us to know you. God, that you came near, that you loved first, that you moved first. God, and I thank you for everyone in this room. God, for those who are married, God, for those who have uh, passed on a spouse to be with you, God, for those who are not yet married, God, would today, would you comfort and would you instruct, God, would you prepare those who are walking towards marriage uh, to honor and glorify you. For those of us in this room who are currently married, God, would you build us up and stir us up to love and good works, God, and for those of us who have passed on a spouse and are waiting for a sweet, sweet reunion. God, would you comfort them? God, and would they uh, leverage the knowledge and wisdom and grace that they've learned over years of, of the gift that you gave them together? And would they pass that on to us and to their children and their grandchildren? And if you will, take a moment and pray for yourself and ask the Lord to teach you today. And if you would be so kind, uh, pray for me that I would speak clearly and be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. 
come and use this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to say thank you uh, to everyone who over the past few weeks and months has uh, prayed for Kelsey and I, has encouraged Kelsey and I, has rejoiced with Kelsey and I, and many of you have been uh, so kindly generous uh, to Kelsey and I as we uh, got to welcome little baby Maven Grace into the world on Tuesday morning. Uh, yeah, I think she's fantastic. Uh, I'm biased. Uh, she's doing great. Her favorite time is from 12 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. every day. So if I say anything crazy, I've been out of the hospital a couple of days, guys. It's going to be great. Adrenaline is a wonderful thing. Uh, but she's precious. She's doing well. Kelsey's doing well. Thank you all so much uh, for rejoicing with us and praying with us in this time. Uh, but a few weeks ago, I decided, you know, it was probably time to like put the crib together like a week before her due date. She was late. It was fine. So I got the box, I got the box, I got the parts out, and then I got the instructions. And I began to read the instructions. Crazy idea. Um, and written the instructions, got the screws, got the parts, had Kelsey help me hold things because I needed seven arms at one point. And a uh, little to our surprise, in about 45 minutes, we had a crib and no extra screws. I'm impressive. Now, I could have just opened the box and started putting something together and would have ended up with something that looked like a crib. I've played with a lot of connects and I've played with a lot of Legos. It would have looked like a crib. There probably would have been some screws left in the box and it would have been like, oh, where do those go? I could have just jumped into it. And instead of creating something that would foster life and flourishing for my little girl, I would have created something that fostered danger and harm, and it would have been unsafe. Now, why did I tell you that? Because God designed marriage to bring life. But before we get there, we do have a picture of the crib and my cute little girl. Yeah, this is going to be great. She's adorable. But God designed marriage to bring life. God designed marriage to bring life and joy and fulfillment. And if we read and follow and trust in God's instructions and design as a husband and wife, it will lead to life. Yes, it takes two to tango. Absolutely. And yes, at times it can and, and it will be difficult. But when a husband and a wife together with Jesus at the center pursue his will and his kingdom, the, the tenor and the overall trajectory of their marriage will be life. Multiple research studies by multiple universities, multiple people with multiple methods have all looked at this idea of how does faith and commitment to faith interact with uh, marital satisfaction and longevity. And over and over and over again, uh, we see that people who, couples who are committed to Protestant or Judeo-Christian faith as a whole have more satisfaction in marriage and have more sustained marriage and lower divorce rates. And the interesting thing that a lot of these studies do is they measure commitment by, the, uh, by several variables, most of which boil down to regular church attendance, uh, regular inter, uh, participation in a small group, and uh, intake of the Word of God. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that people who regularly sit underneath the Word of God, their marriages have a higher and higher success rate over time and over multiple studies. And y'all are all here sitting underneath the Word of God. And so I pretty much assume that's, that's y'all. Like you want your marriages to work. Like you want to have a great marriage. Uh, one research, recent Harvard study showed that 53% of couples who identified as very happy 
in their relationship agreed with the statement, God is at the center of our marriage. Now, by show of hands, uh, you can raise your hand if you want to online. That's cool. Um, <laughs> who in here is married, wants to be married, or knows someone who is married? Cool. This is going to apply to everybody. Now, for those of us in the room who are married, raise your hand if you have the perfect marriage. All right. We had two in the early service as well, so it's holding true. Right? Like none of us. We've all got room to grow. None of us have reached glory. None of us have the image of Christ first perfectly formed in us. And there's grace abounding and grace sufficient for our sins and our shortcomings to continue to make us into the image of Christ. And all of you are here in this room or, or online with us, which tells me you're more than likely in the category of people who want their marriage to grow and succeed and be full of life and vibrancy. And God wants that for you too. He really does. He designed it that way. And my hope and prayer for us this morning is that wherever you're at, you see two things. One, how God designed marriage to bring life. And two, that you walk out of here knowing that God wants to do that in your marriage. That's what I want for you. That we see how God designed marriage to bring life. And you walk out of here knowing that God wants to do that for you and for your marriage. So our big thought for the day is this. God designed marriage to bring life as wives submit as to Christ and as husbands love as Christ. God designed marriage to bring life as wives submit as to Christ and as husbands love as Christ. So point one, God designed marriage to bring life. Marriage was God's idea. He created it. He came up with it. He formed it. He designed it to work in a particular way with uh, particular players. God designed marriage to bring life. He designed it to bring life to one another, and he designed it to bring life through one another. God designed marriage to bring life to you and your husband or you and your wife in two ways. One, through completion, and two, through complement. In the opening pages of the Bible, we see that God makes everything, including a man named Adam. And in Genesis chapter 2, at the end, starting about verse 18, we find God brings all of the creatures to Adam and he gives them a name. So the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my. And by the time Adam gets through all of these creatures, he realizes that every other creature under heaven has a counterpart, that they have a partner. They have another that makes them whole and completes them and complements them, but he didn't. And for the first time in the Hebrew Bible, we see God declare something as not good. Over and over again, we'd see God create something. He'd speak, and then it would exist, and then he would say it was good. Let there be light. It's good. Let there be darkness. That's good. Let there be day and night. That's good. Let there be man and animals and lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. That's good. Man was alone. Not good. And that's meant to make us stop. And that's meant to make us go what's going on here, and expect for God to do something because everything else in paradise and perfection has been good. And then in the next couple of verses, starting in Genesis 2, verses 21 through 23, we see God creates Eve to complete and to complement Adam. And we're told that God looked down on all that he had made after creating Eve, and he said about something that once was not good, Literally, he says it is good, good. And that's the Hebrew way of saying it is exceedingly good. It is very good. And the only time he says that, Eve is created, all is done. 
things are now very good. We see Adam when God brings him, Eve to him in the first idea of a marriage ceremony, and he burst into song, saying, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That the image of God was incomplete without Eve, for God made them male and female. And Adam on his own was not complete. So God created a partner for him, a counterpart, a helper fit just for him. God designed marriage to bring life to a husband and to a wife through completion and through complementation. In God's good design, we find Adam singing for joy. And in Genesis 2.25, we see Adam and Eve were described as naked and not ashamed. There was complete honesty, vulnerability, and intimacy. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, there was perfect life-giving love. And it didn't stop there. Not only did God design marriage to bring life to a husband and wife, he designed it to bring life through a husband and wife. And he does that in two ways. In Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Their job, there was two of them, and there's a whole world. They had work to do. Yes, physical multiplication is a good thing. Uh, extending the family is a good, honoring, God-glorifying thing. And that can be through biological kids. That can be through adoption. That can be through orphan care, uh, through various ways, including the foster system. But it goes beyond the physical into the spiritual because God had a plan. He didn't just want to fill the world with a bunch of people. He wanted to fill the world with his spirit-filled image bearers. And we see Jesus pick up that language in Matthew 28 when he tells us to go into all the nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded him, that we were made not to just physically multiply, but we were made to multiply spiritually, that, God, that the world that God made might be filled with his spirit-filled image bearers. Marriage was meant to bring life through multiplication, which brings us to the second thing. Marriage was meant to bring life through a mission. Through a mission, because God designed marriage with a mission. Habakkuk 2.14, to fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters fill and cover the sea. To take God's blueprint of the Garden of Eden, of this perfect little square on earth, and to take that and cultivate that life and beauty and glory throughout the entire world as it's filled with his spirit-filled image bearers, the glory of God in Christ Jesus. God designed marriage to be one of the primary means of displaying and multiplying his glory in the world with a man and with a woman who bring life to one another and through one another. That's what it was made for. But sin derailed marriage and sin corrupted God's good, perfect design. Adam and Eve sinned and that broke their relationship with God. And when their relationship with God broke, their relationship with one another broke. When Adam and Eve chose to trust in their own wisdom instead of God's, they were separated from God and from one another. We see that sin separated Adam and Eve from God eternally, meaning that they were now destined to death eternal, apart from God and all of his goodness. And from that eternal separation from God, sin brought present separation from one another. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 16, we see God talking to Eve about marriage, and it says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
The word desire and rule shows up multiple times in the first about 10 chapters of Genesis. And the idea of desire is something that's all-consuming in order to control someone. And the idea of rule is to dominate with force. And so because Adam and Eve broke with God, their relationship, the marriage relationship is now cursed so that wives would attempt to consume and control their husbands outside of the grace of God and that husbands would rule harshly and dominate their lives with force outside of the grace of God. Intimacy replaced with a you versus me mentality that keeps the other at arm's length. Honesty replaced with subversion and subjugation. Vulnerability replaced with walls of distrust and mistrust. Sacrificial love replaced by selfish ambition and jealousy. Life replaced with death, eternally and presently. The relationship that God designed to bring so much life now just produces death. So much so that Adam and Eve's first two kids turn the page. One kills the other. What was meant to bring life is now plagued by death. But God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to reconcile us. He didn't leave us alone and tell us to clean up our mess and live with the consequences of our sin and our choices. No, God sent Jesus to reconcile us eternally back to God and presently back to one another. We needed restoration with our Father first and foremost, and that's what we saw last week. Forgiveness of our trespasses, redemption from the curse of sin, for without restoration to the Father, you will never find reconciliation with anyone else on earth. We can band-aid relationships with our spouses, with our friends, with our children, with other family members, with coworkers, but we will never find full restoration and reconciliation under heaven if you miss the most important relationship first. Jesus reconciles us first to the Father. Then out of a restored relationship with God, we find restoration with a spouse, forgiving one another because God and Christ Jesus forgave us reconciling with one another because we've been reconciled to the Father, rebuilding and restoring that honesty and vulnerability and intimacy that God designed and that God desires for our marriages, a return to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were wholly one. So if you've been reconciled to God, what does that mean for your marriage? How do you begin to rebuild and restore the design that God wants for you? so that your marriage is one that brings life to one another and one that brings life through one another. On Ephesians 5, uh, starting actually in verse 15, we see that Paul tells us to look carefully how we walk, how we live. We live our life day to day. Not as unwise, but as wise. Then a few sentences later, we, we get to where we read this morning when we get God's wisdom for a life-giving marriage. Now, wisdom is the understanding of how something works with the ability to work well within it. So for marriage, it's the understanding, it's the comprehension of how God designed marriage to work paired with the capability and the skills to work well within marriage. So what is God's wisdom for a life-giving marriage? It's our big thought. It's all I've got today. God's wisdom is for wives to submit as to Christ and for husbands to love as Christ. First, Paul instructs wives to submit as to Christ in 522. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
God has designed marriage to flourish through a wife's submission to her husband's leadership. God has designed marriage to flourish through a wife's submission to her husband's leadership. So what is submission other than every married woman's favorite word? Okay, apparently y'all like it. Uh, <laughs> first, what is submission not? In the scriptures, submission is neither subjugation nor is it servitude. It's not subjugation. Subjugation is when someone evil comes in and by force makes you do what they want for their pleasure and whatever they desire. And you have no say in the matter. That is evil and that is wrong. And nowhere in the scriptures do we see that kind of human relationship said is okay. In fact, it's called sinful and evil and wicked. And ladies, if there's a guy that's trying to do that, run the other way. It's not okay. Not subjugation. Second, it's not servitude. Submission doesn't make you a second-class citizen. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Over and over again, we see the scriptures actually elevate women. God made them in his image, male and female. In a culture, in a time period that was much more derogatory towards women than our own, it was elevating them. The women were the first to see Jesus arise. God designed for men and women to have an equality in dignity and in value while maintaining a diversity in role and responsibility. Submission in the scriptures is neither subjugation nor servitude. So what is it? It is willingly placing oneself under the leadership of another. Willingly placing oneself under the leadership of another. The Greek word used here is hupotasso. Hupo is preposition, tasso is verb. It is the literally under order uh, with the idea of ordering under another. It's, it's typically used as a military term for a soldier ordering themselves under someone of a higher rank. A soldier ordering themselves under a general or a sergeant or someone else who they're trusting to lead them. Submission in the scriptures is a willful decision of one person to order themselves under the leadership and authority of another. It is willingly allowing and trusting in another to lead you. And in verses 23 and 24, we see that biblical submission is made up, of a, uh, made up of a recognition and of a response. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Submission is a recognition of God's design of male headship. In marriage. In marriage. <laughs> Important little preposition there. It's a recognition of God's design of male headship in marriage, and it's a recognition of God's call upon a husband to lead his family. The recognition in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submission is a response to a husband's leadership in everything, just as we say yes to Christ. The understanding that Paul doesn't spell out there is that Christ only leads us to honor Jesus, to do moral, scripture-honoring, God-glorifying things. Maybe we don't always understand it, but that's only where it leads. It is not talking about a husband who asks his wife to do sinful, immoral, unglorifying things to God. Because Jesus doesn't lead us like that. That's not how he leads. He's a good, he's a good shepherd. He's a good leader. And so it's a response to his leadership to say yes. So, 
How does this recognition and response, how does submission work out in the day-to-day life? In the day-to-day life of a wife, submission is a readiness to respond. It's a readiness to respond in two ways, by following your husband's leadership and by helping him lead. It's a readiness to respond by following your husband's leadership, a preparedness to follow him as he seeks Christ for himself and you and your family. It's a quickness in your soul and your spirit as he, to say yes and to submit to his leadership as he seeks your good and your flourishing under God before his own. It's also a readiness to respond by helping your husband lead. My wife and I are wired very differently, and I'm very thankful for that. Two of me would be a problem. And you and your spouse, you're wired differently. And so for Kelsey and I, it kind of plays out like this. She's a dreamer. She's always asking, what if, or wonder if this is possible. Thinking big, big thoughts. And I'm an executor. I make those dreams become realities. She's really great at seeing the big picture and keeping us from getting sidetracked by a lot of things. And I'm really good at getting with the details. Okay, if we're going to get there, we're going to get A, then we're going to do B, and then we're going to get C, and we're going to get D. And by the time we've hit B, she's bored with details, but I can get through the nitty-gritty and not get tired of it. We're different by design, and it's beautiful. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I need her. I need her, just like Adam needed Eve to help him fulfill his God-given mission in his marriage to take dominion over the earth and multiply and fill it. I need my wife. You need your wife. She compliments me and she completes me, and she helps me lead in at least three ways. First, she helps me dream big for my family. She didn't do it in really profound ways. She asked, honestly, some pretty simple questions, but those caused me to pray. They caused me to reflect. Things like, what do you think God wants for our family? Not a hard question. (laughs) It's a hard one to answer. How do you think God wants us to leverage our finances for the kingdom because we've got multiple friends who are moving overseas and we might not have a lot, but we we might have some extra lying around and maybe we can cut back in some places. What do you think? How do we want to leverage our marriage, our lives, our family now with little Maven for the kingdom and glory of God? She helps me dream big for my family. Second, she helps sure up my blind spots. I'm not Jesus. I don't see everything. I don't, I don't know everything. I'm not all powerful and I'm, I'm not always good. And that's okay because I'm not Jesus. But she helps me see what I can't see on my own. She helps me do what I can on my own. And she helps me be more like Jesus than I ever would be left to my own devices. Third way she helps me lead is she celebrates wins. She celebrates wins. We become what we celebrate. It's another word for praise or worship. And we see all throughout the Old Testament that as the people of God worshiped God, they became more like God. And as they worshiped created things, they became more like created things. We become what we celebrate. So when my wife celebrates me leading in small ways or in big ways, it makes me want to do that again. When she celebrates me spraying spontaneously over something in our family, it reinforces that action and makes me want to do it again. When she celebrates a kind word or an an act of service, it reinforces that action and makes me want to do it again. So wives, when you see your husband doing something right, celebrate it. 
It doesn't have to be a big hoopla. Hey, I, I noticed this and it really meant a lot to me. A text message, a note. It doesn't have to be big, but acknowledge it because here's the thing. Maybe it's just me. I'm not sure at times, and I can be pretty self-conscious if I'm doing the right thing and loving you well. I just don't always know. And I do love her. And I want to, and I'm just not always sure. It's not about being praised. And as someone whose love language is physical touch and words of affirmation, hold me and tell me I'm special, it's not about that. It's about being told by the person that I love most and want to love more than anyone under heaven that I'm on the right track at loving her well. So celebrate. Help them out. We need it. God's wisdom for a life-giving marriage is for wives to submit as to Christ and for husbands to love as Christ. For husbands to love as Christ. Loving as Christ will require at least two things of us, gentlemen. Initiation and implementation. Love requires that you initiate. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. While we were far off, God brought us near, Ephesians 2.13. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4. Jesus came to us. Jesus moved first. We love because God first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. He saw our distress. He saw our need, and he lovingly initiated our rescue. So husbands, initiate. You identify what isn't going well or what could be going better, and you initiate a plan and a conversation to remedy it or improve it. Don't wait for your wife to bring it up. <laughs> so many frustrations and so many conversations that would have gone better if I would have just not sat back and hoped that she didn't notice or sat back and hoped that she wouldn't bring it up. And how much better those things would have gone if I would have just worked up the courage to say something. She doesn't expect you to have all the answers. You're not Jesus. You're not going to. She does long for you to start the conversation and to come to the table with a few ideas, even if she already has a better one. It's not about being right. It's about initiating because that's what love does. Love initiates, and then love implements. Doing what you'll say you'll do, being a man of character, being a man of integrity, love does. Love looks, love plans, then love carries that plan through to completion. Jesus did not stop short of redemption. He was tempted. He could have called down a legion of angels to take him off the cross, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, the reconciliation and the redemption of you and me, he endured. He saw redemption carried through to completion. That's love. That's love. And that's our call and that's our example, husbands. This is the love that we are called by God and get the honor to by God to emulate and embody for our wives. This is the kind of love 
that is easy to submit to and that's a joy to say yes to. That's why good leadership is so freeing to those they're leading. Yes, is following Jesus at times uncertain or can feel difficult and require a lot of faith? Yes. But in all honesty, is following Jesus hard? No. He's a good leader. He's a good shepherd who gave himself up for us because good leadership is motivated by love. It is. And good leadership pursues the good of those under their care, not the good of their self. So how has God designed you to love your wife as Christ loved the church? God has designed marriage to flourish through a husband's sacrificial and spiritual leadership of his wife. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God has designed marriage to flourish when husbands sacrificially lead their wives, which means we look to her needs. We look to her wants and her good under God above and before our own. It's in the little things that get us ready. Like what's for dinner? Where do you want to go out? What do you want to do on Saturday? What do, you, what do you want to see at the movies? Or like, what do you want to watch on Netflix? What kind of furniture do you want in the house? It's initiating to take the kids instead of being asked. It's initiating and taking out the garbage or doing the dishes so that she didn't have to do it later. It's initiating to do something for her instead of watching a few more minutes of Fox or ESPN or scrolling whatever platform. It's the daily rhythm. It's the daily active discipline of seeking her good and looking to serve her beyond and before your own to-dos and your own comfort. We sacrificially lead in the little things so that we can sacrificially lead in the big ones. So that we might choose her good and her flourishing over our own every time. So that we say no to that promotion because it would keep us away from home. That we say no to that new job because it means travel and not being there to put the kids down. That we maybe take a less prestigious job because she maybe needs to move to a drier climate for health reasons or she really, really, really wants to move back home to be by our parents because maybe they're getting a little older. And that's not good for you from the world standpoint. Less money, less prestige, less people reporting. But it's good for her. Good for her. So we choose death so that she might find life because that's what Jesus did for us. It means we get the joy and the honor of choosing to sacrifice when that sacrifice comes with a real cost and not just an inconvenience. God has designed husbands to love through sacrificial leadership. And God has designed husbands to, lead, to love through spiritual leadership. Verses 26 and 27 talk about sanctifying your wife, calling us to take the spiritual leadership of our families. So initiate praying in planned and spontaneous moments with your spouse. Initiate reading the scriptures and talking about them with your spouse. Be ready to speak loving and kind words of truth in the moments of discouragement or trial. Be ready to be the one who's getting up first to come to church on Sundays or go to connection group. 
be ready if there's a women's Bible study or small group that she really wants to be a part of to figure out what that's going to take on your time and your schedule and for your family for her to be free to do that and grow. Be ready in the midst of a fight to be the first to repent and the quickest to forgive and the fastest to extend grace. A good friend, when Kelsey and I were engaged and I was being less than the holy fiance, honesty is best policy. Sitting on his couch, he looked at me and said, Justin, be the husband that you want your wife to have. Took me a moment. What do you mean? Be the husband you want your wife to have, not just the person you are right now. Be the person that you want her to be married to, not just the person that you want to react with. And I can't tell you how many times when we've been at it, Ryan's voice would come to my head, proverbing this concept of leading sacrificially and spiritually to be the husband that I want my wife to have. And in that moment, I have the opportunity to choose. I have the chance to choose to be the husband who leads with love and kindness, modeling grace and repentance in my family. Or I have the chance to be the husband who leads with selfishness and force to get his way. I get the opportunity between sanctification and between sin. I get the opportunity to choose between holiness and the pursuit of a hard heart. Lead spiritually, for you are the shepherd of your home. The spiritual temperature and vibrancy of your family's faith is on you and it's on me. And the spirituality and vibrancy of our family's faith is most likely a reflection of us. I will set the pace for my family's faith. Over and over again, a lack of prayer in my family or in my marriage is a lack of prayer in my life. A lack of the scriptures just being on our lips and in our marriage is a lack of scripture in my life. A lack of grace and patience with my wife is a lack of time experiencing the grace and patience that God has for me in Christ Jesus. So men, if we want to lead and feed our families, which I believe you do because you're here, and a lot of guys aren't, we want to be the men who lead and feed our families. We want our families to be filled with a vibrant faith that believes the promises of God. If we want to be the men who reflect Jesus so brightly in the walls of our homes, we must first care for our own souls. You cannot give what you do not have. And if you are not sitting at the feet of our King and our Savior, you have nowhere to bring your family to. If you don't know his grace, if you're not experiencing his glory and his word, you have nothing to offer. And I say that as someone who's been there. We're all in process. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. God has designed marriage to flourish through a husband's sacrificial and spiritual leadership of his wife, and God in his wisdom and grace not only tells us what he wants for us, but he tells us why. We're almost done. God calls us to love our wives as Christ loved us for two reasons. 
one because you are one united person. You're one united person. In the covenant of marriage, you are no longer two distinct persons. You are one united whole. In the beauty of mystery that reflects that of the Trinity, a husband and wife are inseparably and beautifully united together in a way that is simultaneously united yet diverse. You are two people. You go to different places. You do different things. But in marriage, you are now one united whole, which leads us to the second reason that God gives us. Because your greatest joy, husband, is found in her greatest joy in God. Your greatest joy under this, on this earth will be found in her greatest joy in God. Which means I get the honor and you get the honor and privilege and joy of living the rest of your life before God, seeing her flourish in God of stewarding her emotions and her dreams and her body and her aspirations and her thoughts that are now united to you and to me so that they flourish and they come to fulfillment in God, of seeing all that God has put in her soul and in her heart and pursuing those until they're realized for the glory of God in her, of seeing the gifts and the talents and the dreams for God's kingdom that God created and placed in her soul and spending my love and my energy and my days on this earth, nourishing those and cherishing her that they might come to fulfillment for the kingdom of God. And when I stand before him, I might present her without spot or wrinkle or blemish, radiating the glory of God. And this type of love doesn't cease until God takes one of us home or God comes back. We get the joy of seeking her joy every day that we get to be married. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul ends by reminding us of God's good design in Genesis. And he tells us that as we walk in God's wisdom for marriage, we will display the beautiful mystery of Christ's love for his church. That God designed marriage to bring life to you and God designed marriage to bring life through you. To you through completion and through complement. Through you as you multiply and go on mission together. So as we walk in God's wisdom for marriage, we will find life. We find life in our marriage and through our marriage all for the glory of God as we walk in God's good design. And when we do that, we'll display God's glory in our families, in our extended families, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. But where does that leave us? Well, the band's going to come back up and we're going to go into a time of response. And maybe you're here and you're not yet married. I pray God continues to prepare your soul and your heart. That's what he has for you. Maybe you're here today and you are married and you've been married a lot longer than me. And things are going well. I also know that being married for a long time doesn't mean that things always go well. I have parents. God has done some amazing things in their life. And if things are going well, bless his name. Thank him for the grace that he's shown you. And then begin to look around you to those in your connection group, to those in your family, to your friends who, who may not be in the same boat and offer, step in to help, to be grace that's tangible, that they might 
flourish under God. If you're here and maybe you wouldn't say your marriage is doing super hot. Every married couple in this room has been there. There is nothing that is uncommon to man. And there is grace abounding and there's grace sufficient. So husband, maybe you need to grab your wife's hand as we begin to sing and just sit and pray. Maybe you need to grab her hand and you need to come down here as an outward sign of what you want the Lord to do inwardly in your relationship and just kneel and pray and ask him to fill your lives with grace and forgiveness. And for those of us here who have said goodbye to a spouse, One, I'm sorry. Pain sounds unimaginable. I know you're longing to see them again. And one day you will. And my hope for you is that you would thank the Lord for the days he gave you, as I'm sure you have, and that you would then pass on the wisdom that he worked in you and your spouse's life to your children, to your children's children, to us. You're not done yet. And I can't wait for you to see them again. Let's pray and respond. God, we are so thankful for this gift of the marriage covenant and relationship that you give us. There's really nothing like it. The joy, the fulfillment, the intimacy, second only to you. God, would your grace flood this room right now? God, would you move some to repentance? Would you move some to deep gratefulness and generosity? Would your grace comfort those of us who deeply miss a loved one? God, would you help us walk out of here with marriages that bring life to us and those around us? God, would we believe that you can do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine, not just in someone else's marriage, not just in someone else's circumstance, but in ours, and that you want to. God, we love you and we trust you. Continue to use this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.